So this, this morning, we're going to be diving into another large chunk of the, uh, the, the passage through. Um, we're going through a series of the book of Acts, um, looking at the, the early church and the mission of God and um, how he is uh, continuing this, this mission through the, through the church uh, that, was, um, that was inaugurated so, so many years ago after the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And uh, today we're going we're gonna to hit another large chunk. We've been taking, uh, I guess, through the last, um, the last eight chapters or so of the book of Acts, we've been kind of taking bigger pieces walking through it. And the reason that we're doing that uh, is because a lot of them, like you'll see today, um, there's, there's a span of two chapters that's, that's capturing one conversation, one event that's happening. Um, and so that's why we're kind of moving a little bit quicker. It's just the, the, the way uh, Luke wrote the storyline, uh, the way he captured these moments. Um, and so we're going to be starting in Acts chapter 25 if you want to, if you want to go there now. And I just want to kind of catch us up. Uh, go, I want to go back several, um, several chapters back so we kind of all get in context with where we are. Uh, in chapter 22 of Acts, uh, Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. He has, he has done missionary journeys. Um, and he has made his way, uh, set his sights on going to Jerusalem. He has been collecting an offering uh, for the church. The church at Jerusalem uh, this, in this time was going through a, a great famine, um, and they were, they were on hard times. They were, they were some suffering and things like that. And so what Paul started doing as he was planting churches going all throughout Asia uh, and, and, and all the way around, um, even to, to uh, you know, across in, into Asia, uh, he was as these churches were being planted. As he was going back and visiting the churches that he had planted, he was collecting this offering, and his goal was to get to Jerusalem to deliver this offering. But it came at a price. Uh, as he as he arrives at Jerusalem, what everyone has been saying to him, and what he already knew, and what the Holy Spirit was even telling him, is that when you get to Jerusalem, um, they they want you dead. They 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 you have you have basically flipped this side of the world upside down. Um, and and they, they want nothing to do with that. And so, you know, all of his friends, all of his close companions, they're encouraging to, to not go. Don't go to Jerusalem. Uh, they want you dead there. Uh, however, Paul knows what his calling is. Paul knows what his, what his mission is. And so he arrives in Jerusalem at chapter 22 after all of these warnings. And there's, he's only there just a few days. Um, and, and as he's there, he, he kind of goes into the temple. Uh, he begins to, to, to preach the gospel. Uh, an angry mob is formed against him. Uh, this was not surprising to him. He knew that these things were going to be happening, and so uh, they, they wanted him dead. And so he's taken into custody by Roman soldiers at really just to spare his life because they, they were fixing to uh, uh, kill Paul in, in this angry mob. And so while he's in custody, he's given this opportunity to speak to this crowd, to address the crowd. Um, and as he does, he starts speaking to them in their own language. And that's something we're going to see a lot about Paul today is that uh, he's, he's, an excellent, um, he's excellent at contextualizing, knowing his audience, knowing where he is in his surroundings and his settings, and playing that to his advantage in order to clearly communicate the gospel. And so he begins to speak to this crowd in, in their native tongue, in the Hebrew. He knew Hebrew. He was a, he was a Jew himself. And so uh, when he started speaking in their language, they, they tuned in, okay, this guy is one of us. He speaks like us. He knows our heritage. He knows our history. He knows our religion. And so they're listening um, until he gets to the part where uh, he says, you know what? Jesus died uh, for the Gentiles too. And that's been part of God's plan the whole time. Um, this was the part where uh, they really stopped listening and they wanted him dead again. Um, and that's, that's uh, 
that's unfortunate that uh, that was their response, but it's fortunate for us that he didn't waver and preach and bring the gospel to the Gentiles. You and I in this room here are uh, here today because Paul was faithful to go and preach the gospel to, to, to whoever would listen, all of God's creation, just like Jesus commanded us in the, in the uh, Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. And so he starts preaching the gospel. And one of the things we're going to see again today, when he, when he stood up in front of this crowd, he begins to talk about his own personal conversion, that moment that he was converted to Christianity. And we're going to see him do that again today, and we've seen him do that throughout all of these sermons. That's how he starts all of his gospel uh, presentations. But before he can even finish, the, the crowd becomes angry, uh, and he's taken away again. And at this point, um, the, Roman, uh, the Roman authorities learn that he is actually a Roman citizen. He hadn't, let, he hadn't shown his cards about that yet. Uh, he'd just kind of been uh, you know, trying to be faithful to preach the gospel and keep Jesus the center of this, and, and, and he, he's trying to be faithful to that. Uh, and whenever they're just about to, uh, to punish him, um, he basically just shows his cards and says, Hey, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Are you, are you fixing to do this to a Roman citizen without properly... Uh, going through the chain of command and, and doing the, 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 the proper practice of, 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 of trial and, and, and hearing my side of the story. And so they, they basically back away and say, we, we've got another problems on our hands. He's introducing a lot of complications here. If we were to try to punish him, it's not going to go well for any of us. He's a Roman citizen. Um, and so while he's there in prison, they put him back in prison to figure out what they're going to do with him next. And while he's there, Jesus Christ himself shows up to minister to him. And I love that as I was just thinking about this, just doing, just thinking through the background of things that, that Jesus is keeping his promise even then, right? He said, go to every nation, preach the gospel and baptize them and teach them to obey everything that I've taught you and I will be with you always. You do these things. I'm with you. I'm with you. And, and in that moment, Paul was reminded of that promise, right? That Jesus was there in his darkest hour. Jesus is there ministering to him. Uh, and at the same time that Jesus is in that cell, uh, that prison cell, ministering to, to Paul and, 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 and affirming his promises and saying, you're not done yet. We've got more gospel to preach. We've got more people to reach. As that was going on, also across town what was going on was this, this, um, this scheme um, to, to take Paul out. There was going to be a, a, an ambush set against Paul, and they were going to try to lure Paul out. They were going to try to make up this story to, to give a, send Paul back. We want to, we've got more questions for Paul, so could you, could you send him back for us to question him some more? But, but their real plan was that there would be an ambush waiting to attack Paul on his way. Um, and, and he learned of that, and so did the Roman authorities. And so instead of, uh, instead of that plan working the way they were hoping it would work, um, Paul is sent to Caesarea, and he's sent with pretty much uh, a, a security detail that the President of the United States wouldn't even get. Uh, and, and so he makes his way safely to, to Caesarea. Um, and we left off two weeks ago once again with Paul preaching the gospel. Uh, we took a break last week, but the week before that, you see that, that Paul is, is before his, uh, the, 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 the Roman governors, Felix uh, and his wife, Drusilla, and he's preaching the gospel again. And today we open up chapter 25, uh, where we left off with Festus replacing Felix as the, the Roman governor. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the governor of Judea. And upon Felix's arrival, so this replacement, this transition in power is taking place, uh, is where our text picks up today. Uh, he, he shows up to assume his new role, um, and, and 
Upon his arrival, these Jewish leaders, uh, they're still angst about outing Paul. They want him out. And he's been there for some time now. A few years have gone by. And when this new, new ruler, this new leader shows up, um, the Jewish leaders show back up and say, hey, uh, this whole Paul situation, that's not, that's not done yet. We still have more things that we want to uh, ask him, we want to talk to him about. Um, and so they were um, trying to use the same tactics that they tried to use before. They were really trying to lure him out so that they can set an ambush against him and attack him again. And it's, uh, what's the, uh, oh shoot, what's the saying where it's... Uh, uh, insanity. What's, what's insanity? Keep, you, you keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result. That's what these guys are doing. Okay, well, let's try it again. It didn't work the first time. Let's try it again. It doesn't work again. Uh, their plan is unraveled when Festus, instead of telling them to, to uh, instead of sending Paul to them, he says, why don't you guys come up to Caesarea with me and we'll talk to him there. And so their plan wouldn't work out. And we're going to pick up our text because we have so much uh, to cover. We're going to pick our text up in, in verse 13 of chapter uh, 25. This is Paul waiting um, to be sent to Rome, and I'm going to read a, a good portion of it. I'm going to read the, from verse 13 all the way through chapter 26, and so if you will follow along with me in chapter 25, verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left, in, left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to, how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. 
My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day, night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself con was convinced that I, I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority of, and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, things that you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I except for these chains. And then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them and when they had withdrawn they said to one another this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray together. Father we come to you this morning uh, once again just humbled under this word and humbled under the truth and the reality, uh, Father, that 
Uh, you are doing every single thing uh, in your will to see that the gospel go to the nations, uh, to the Gentiles, um, Father, to all of those whom you have foreknown and called according to your purpose. And so, Father, I pray this morning that as we look at your word, as we look at how Paul communicates uh, his story and communicates the gospel, uh, that, God, we would hear it in a fresh new way, that we would hear it in a way that uh, doesn't just provide information for us, God, but gives is about transformation for us in this room in a way that would compel us to go and carry this good news to the world. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're just I, what, mainly what I want to focus on today is because, and the reason I want to I go here is um, because we've seen Paul share this story often. Uh, as we've walked through the book of Acts, every time he's, uh, every time he's got an audience, uh, this is what he does. He shares his story about Jesus and, and, and shares the way for others to meet Jesus. Uh, he preaches the gospel, and he uses that, uh, his story as a means uh, to preach the gospel. And so I want to take a look at his story and how that's one of the things we haven't stopped and, and carefully looked at. And so I want to do that today. And I've already said it once or twice this morning. Uh, I want you to notice how he contextualizes uh, the gospel, how he contextualizes once again the audience. He knows his audience. He knows who's, who's in front of him. He knows who's listening to him, whose ear he has. There's King Agrippa. That's who he's addressing like one-on-one directly. He's, he's uh, answering questions and giving testimony to King Agrippa. This is a Agrippa II. Uh, there was the, uh, Herod the Great, and then there was uh, uh, Herod Agrippa, and now this is Agrippa III. Uh, he was appointed uh, by the Romans as king over the Jews, and the reason they did this, uh, basically his role as, as a king of the Jews was to oversee Jewish life. Uh, they were under Roman rule, uh, but they gave the Jews a lot of freedom to kind of practice within their own religion as long as they didn't kind of buck the system. Uh, and so they would appoint governors and leaders of the Jewish people to kind of help, help manage that and to keep the peace and uh, make sure that everybody's abiding by the rules and living in harmony together. Um, the, the Romans didn't really care about what the Jews believed or how they practiced their religion just as long as they didn't challenge the system. You can do what you want inside this box. Um, doesn't that sound familiar? You can, you, can, you can practice your religion as long as it doesn't confront what I believe or it doesn't confront my agenda or the thing that we have going on over here. It's very, very similar, it feels like to me. Um, and so that's why they had uh, uh, governors, uh, leaders, or kings over the Jews. And so you can see then why he shows up. Why is he showing up here? Because there's this one guy named Paul who is doing the opposite of what, he's, what, what Agrippa's in charge of doing, right? Agrippa's in charge of keeping peace. Well, the Jews are in turmoil. They're in an uproar right now because there's this, there's, there's this noise coming from all corners of the region that this one Paul is, is wreaking havoc on, on their communities and on their, on their lives. That he's just trying to rip their harmony apart and everything that they believe he's challenging and he's just flipping their world upside down. And so that's one reason why Agrippa has... Has, has come here to preside over these hearings. He wants to see uh, what is this guy really about? What is he doing? And is all these things true? Or are people being dramatic about it? What's going on here? And it's interesting how Paul would, um, or, or how Agrippa would present himself when he shows up in verse 23. It says, He came with great pomp. He brought in all the courts and he brought in all the people uh, and, he, and he came just kind of almost like a, like a parade in his honor, is how he enters the room. And it's become now more of a spectacle about Agrippa than it is about a man on trial. 
You see, so that now he don't really care what Paul has to say. What he really cares a bit about is how will he be presented when he shows up in the room. I'm the guy in charge. I'm the guy who deserves honor. I'm the guy commanding respect. And when I walk in the room, I want everyone to notice that about me. You see, it's become about him. It's not even about Paul. He don't care about Paul. He don't care about Paul's testimony. It's evident that he's not really taking these matters seriously. He can care less about how these proceedings are going to go. What he cares about is his image. What he cares about is receiving honor from people, having a place of power and prominence. That's what he's concerned with. And there's, along with King Agrippa, again, Paul's contextualizing. He's, he's learning his audience. And so King Agrippa's there. And then there's this angry mob who's, their, their heads have, have reared again. Here they are. They, they want Paul dead again. So he, he notices that, that these, there's people in the room that want me dead. Uh, they're not here for my good. They want me dead. Uh, they're not trying to correct Paul. They're not trying to rehabilitate Paul. They don't want to try to, no, Paul, you kind of got that wrong. Like, here's, here's what it looks like in reality. They're not trying to correct Paul's theology. They don't, they don't care about that either. They just want Paul dead. They, they, they want him dead because their world has been ripped up. And on two occasions, they've tried to ambush him and leave him for dead. And they failed at that. And then there's these curious onlookers, right? There's these people, the people who slow down in the other side of the interstate when there's a wreck. Those people, that, those are around. They just, they're there for a show. They're there for a spectacle. They want to just kind of see what's going on. Anytime there's a public spectacle going on, you can guarantee that there's going to be people that congregate, that come around. They just want to see, wow, what's happening next? I think of it all the time. Like, uh, How many people in the room are NASCAR fans? We have NASCAR fans. We've got a NASCAR fan in the room, one, two. Um, okay, so two and a half. That was kind of... All right, maybe. Um, I always wondered, like, everybody who's a NASCAR fan tells me, like, man, no, if you just kind of know, like, if you really kind of got to go there to really kind of understand what's going on, and really, like, I'm just seeing a left turn for, like, four hours, you know, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know, it's exciting. But I think, and the same thing, like, with boxing, right, like a boxing match, um, maybe a few people are really looking at skill and looking at speed and what kind of, you know, if we're, you know, we're looking at these kinds of sports, but I think deep down what we really want to see is a wreck, what we really want to see is somebody get knocked out. Like that's, that's, what, like, that's what we're waiting for. We want to see that part of it. We want to see the show. We're, we're there to kind of see what's going to happen, you know? Otherwise, you just watch the guy drive around and left turns for four hours, and he was fast. You know, I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. Uh, I, it. Some people get it. I don't get it. Um, but I think that's these curious onlookers, right? These people who are just kind of congregate to see what's going to happen next. Like what exciting thing is going to happen next? And so they are, they're just kind of walking by. They're headed uh, to the grocery store, and there's this, this commotion going on. And these people, they, they kind of crowd around and congregate around. They just want to see, see crazy. They just, what, what's crazy over there? Let's go see that. And Paul recognizes this audience. He sees these people. He sees these people who are against him. He sees these people who uh, aren't really in tune with what's going on at all. He sees King Agrippa. And I love what the text says and. Chapter 26, verse 3. I beg you to listen to me patiently. Everybody in the room, everybody here, I beg you to listen to me patiently. There's a diverse crowd. Paul knows that Agrippa isn't interested in what he has to say. He's only interested in that he might be celebrated and made much of. That's what he knows about Agrippa. He knows that these people in the room aren't trying to convince him to believe a different theology, to, to, to believe a, a different kind of understanding of God. They, he just knows that they want him dead. 
And so he knows that, and he knows that there's these rubberneckers who are in the room who are just kind of, oh, what's going on? I don't really care. Just, I just want to see crazy. I just want to see what happens. They're not concerned. They don't have a dog in the fight. They're just curious. And so that's the proper way to address a diverse crowd like that. Listen, everybody in the room, you're at a different place. King Agrippa over here, uh, he's care- he all, all he cares about is himself. All of these Jewish leaders... They care about preserving their power. These curious onlookers, they don't really care what happens, just as long as they get to see crazy. And so I need everybody, I'm begging you to listen to me patiently. He knows that there's a big difference between listening and hearing. Ashley and I had this conversation yesterday, like on two different occasions. She said, well, I just told you that. And, and I'm like, well, well, I didn't hear you. And she's like, you're not listening. I'm like, no, I'm listening but I didn't hear you. See, there's a big difference between listening and, and hearing. And she's like, okay, well, you're not hearing me. <laughs> and like, whatever it takes, you, you're not, we're not communicating, right? And Paul knows there's a big difference between listening and hearing. Like, and so he says, I need for you all to listen. Tune in. Come, come around and, and get around here and listen to what I have to say. I think a lot of division in homes and our nation... Is due to not listening. We don't listen to one another. We hear one another, but we don't listen. And what listening means is that I'm just going to sit here and hear what you had to say. I want to understand where you are, where you're at. I want to understand what you're thinking. So I want to listen rather than hearing one another. See, listening is what changes people's minds. You want to work on unity? You want to work on reconciliation? You, do you have a grievance with someone in your family, someone at your, at your workplace, uh, a friend of yours who right now at this very moment there's tension, there's separation, there's something that happened that separated you two? You become a listener. You want to understand. Be a listener. That's what changes people's minds. This is why... I will lose my mind when I see people standing on a street corner, in front of a grocery store, at the movie theater, yelling out to people, turn or burn. Nobody's listening to you. They're only hearing you. And if you want to change their mind, they need to be able to listen to you. So this this is what Paul is after. He wants his audience to be moved. I, I want to change your perspective. I want you to hear me and hear me well because I don't want you to just hear me make a bunch of noise. I want you to listen to to what I have to say because he's not after trying to prove that he's right. He He wants them to be transformed by the gospel. And so he begs them patiently, listen to me. And one of the things that I took away as I was just kind of reading through this text is, you know, it's hard for a know it all to listen. It's difficult that for a know-it-all to actually listen. A know-it-all hears a lot of stuff, but it's difficult for a know-it-all to, to, to really listen. These are the people who've got everything figured out, don't they? Right? I've got it, I've got, I know. I, I've got it all figured out. I've got all the answers. And these people, they've got it all figured out. They've got all the answers. They, they're not interested in Paul's defense. They just want him dead. They don't care what he has to say. They know it all. But when they dismiss Paul this way, when, when they just kind of, they're dismissing the promises of Scripture, and they're, they're dismissing the fulfillment in Christ of those Scriptures, 
Because that's what Paul's trying to communicate to them. The scriptures that you know so very well, Jesus fulfilled. And when they dismiss that message, they dismiss these promises. They've heard all of this before, right? Heard, heard the song and dance before. Got it all figured out, and that's why they're closed to what he had to say. And we are in so much danger of falling into that same kind of trap. I mean, really, like, like I know what you're about to say. Like, I, know, I, know, I, know what you're, I know what you're about to say. Like, I've heard this before. Like, this is like the 532nd time we've heard Paul's testimony just in the book of Acts. I know, what's fixing, I know what he's fixing to say. See, we're falling into that trap, right? Like, I grew up in church. I know all the answers. I was raised in church from this age, and, and so you can't tell me nothing that I don't know. You're not being a very good listener. So please don't tune out if you feel like you already have enough information. Information is not what I'm after this morning. Information is not what I want to communicate to you this morning. I want you to be transformed by the power of the gospel. That's what I want for you. It's not information that I'm trying to speak to you today. Paul begins his testimony and he would remind the people of what they already know because here's the deal. Most of the time, preaching is not telling you something you don't know. Preaching is reminding you of what you already know. That's mostly what we do up here. When we open the scriptures and we, and we read the truths of God, these are things that we're just having to remind you of what you already know. And so Paul communicates that. He reminds the people, you know all these things. You know about our fathers. You know what the promise of God was. And he's reminding them of what they already know, and he uses their heritage. He walks through their history and their heritage, who they are as a people, and he essentially just reminds them of the promise of God. What's the promise of God? Well, the promise of God is that he's going to redeem us, that he's going to save us, that he's going to deliver us. And then that begs the question, from what? What is he going to save me from? What is he going to deliver me from? See, that's where we got to start, right? The good news is only good if it invades a bad space. And so we got to start with the fact that we are needy. We are desperate without God. We are without hope. And he opens this door and he reminds this crowd that we're all far from God. Everyone who's within an earshot, hear me. We are all far from God, and if good works and keeping the rules, obeying the law, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, having a religious passion and zeal, if that was the way to fix this dilemma of being far from God, you and I both know we're in a lot of trouble. We're in a lot of trouble. We're, we're, we're hopeless. And then Paul would give his, his humble admission, right? He would lay out this dilemma. He would say in verse 9 of chapter 26, I myself was convinced, I was convinced, I was a know-it-all, that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote for them, against them. And I punished them often in, in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and enraging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
Paul's basically saying, I had it all figured out. I, I, I knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. I was steeped in Jewish religion. I could quote to you all of the Old Testament. I could tell you what it all meant. That's all I was ever immersed in. So if anyone knows what the Bible has to say, it would be Paul. And that's where he's pointing. And I can imagine him describing himself using that same tone that he used in in Philippians when he was going to be writing to this church. Chapter 3, verse 4, he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul basically said, I was much more than just a Jewish theologian who sat around and discussing different passages and texts and studying the law. I was so much more that I put hands and feet to what I believed. I was zealous for the law, so much so that I would go and choke out the way of Jesus. That's how much I believed it. That's that's how steeped in the religion I was. And he says all of these things to point out the fact And he was dead wrong in what he believed and what he grew up being taught. It's so very important for us to hear that. Paul was dead wrong in what he believed and what he was raised to believe, what what he grew up being taught. It's for every one of us to consider the claims of Jesus. It's for every one of us to look at Scripture and to understand exactly what God is trying to communicate to us. Without our own agenda, without trying to insert ourselves to, to, as a power grab. Because that's where these Jewish leaders had it all wrong. They felt like they were prominent, that they were chosen by God, therefore everyone else is just less than. And Paul's reminded, no, no, no. All the promises of God said that Jesus was going to be a light to the Gentiles also. That he was going to actually choose the Jewish people to reach the Gentiles, and now he's doing it. All of his zeal, all of his passion was misguided because he didn't fully grasp the truth of what Scripture was saying. And God was not pleased with Paul. He was not pleased with what Paul was doing, and that's what he's trying to communicate to this angry mob of people who's listening to him right now. All of that stuff, all of who I am, all of who I, what I know, and, and the things that I've done, and how I actually put hands and feet to what I believed, and, the, and, and it resulted in persecuted Christians, all of those things... It wasn't getting me any closer to God. My good works were not getting me any closer to God. My passion for His Word was not getting me any closer to Him. I had all the information about God's Word. I could kill anybody in a Bible drill, and that did not get me closer to God. Nothing pleased God with what I was doing. And that's what He's trying to communicate to this group of people. He's basically saying, I was one of you guys. I know where you are. And you think that your good works can get you there, and it can't. You need Jesus. And if you're a person who relies on good behavior, if you're a person who relies on obedience as the pathway to God, you have a dirty secret, don't you? Here, it might look good. It might look like you got yourself together. Like, I'm, I, am, I am 
being obedient. I am, I am following the rules, and, and, I, and, I, and I do good things, and, I, and, I, and I, I am extremely generous, and I give to charity and all of those things. But you got a secret, don't you? Those things really aren't true, are they? They're only true when you're in front of a group. We all know that there are some dark and shameful places in our heart, right? There's, there's so many broken things here for every one of us. And so we can, we can put on a big dog and pony show. We can dress up and come and, and put on the show and make people think that we're like super religious and super righteous and super holy. But man, when we sit down in the quiet and we just allow God to speak to us, it's a convicting place to sit. So can I lovingly call you out by saying that your secret isn't as hidden as you think it is? And I'm going to say that, and I'm just repeating what Scripture says. Romans 3, none is righteous. And if you don't understand what none is, he would say, no, not one. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned, that's including you and me in the room, all have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. See, your secret has been exposed. And there's freedom in that. So let's just, let's just all agree that the secret is out, man. That we, we, we don't, we're not perfect. That we don't have it all together. And that, that's what separates us from God. And to rely on your good behavior and your obedience as the pathway to God completely diminishes and completely dismisses the work that Jesus did on the cross. It completely sh it shuns every bit of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross to say, this is what gets me closer to God. Yes, I'm far from God right now, but I'm going to give and I'm going to do good things and I'm going to say good things and I'm going to share and like and pr pr uh, type, type amen for the little Jesus sparkly picture on my social media. And then that's going to get me closer to God. And that dismisses the work of the cross. And sadly, this is the case for the overwhelming majority of Christianity. Really, it is. It's, it's the overwhelming majority of Christians who would think that, yes, I was a wretched person and it took the grace of God to save me and what sustains me in that grace is my good works. See, we're completely missing the point that we have to live in the gospel, that we have to uh, remember that the cross is what, what keeps me and what holds me and what sustains me every single day. It's my good works are nothing. They're nothing. So your faith, it's not something that you must do in order to please God. And that's what Paul is trying to get across to this crowd. And he said, you know what? I learned a very valuable lesson on the road to Damascus. On that road that day, about high noon, I learned the most valuable lessons of my life on that day. I learned that day on my way to Damascus that I was hopeless without Jesus. The very one that I was going to persecute. I was hopeless without Jesus. All of my supposed righteousness and zeal, it got me nowhere with Jesus. I wasn't any closer to God than the, 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 than the least of these and the worst of the worst of sinners. 
On that way to Damascus that day at high noon, Paul learned that he was separated from God, that he was far away from God, that he was without God. The most zealous of all of, Jew, all of the Jewish people, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a champion at Bible trivia, didn't have God. And all of us who follow Jesus, we've had this day, haven't we? For all of us who, who truly and honestly follow Jesus, we've had this day, haven't we? Well, we thought a lot of things about God, but it, it had to take an encounter with Jesus to show us just how far we were. And that the only thing that would bring us near to God is the grace of Him that comes through Jesus Christ. That was the only way, and you know this, and so all of you who've yet to lay your yes down to Jesus, you've got to have this day. This day has to happen for you. It must happen for you. I'm begging that God would make today that day for you. That you would come and you would have an encounter with Jesus in a way that says, I, everything that I thought about God has been wrong. Everything that I thought I knew about God has been wrong. It is only by grace through faith in Christ that I'm brought near to God. That is the only thing that pleases God at this point. And so you've got to have that day. I hope today is that day. I genuinely hope today is that day. Paul would go on and he would tell of his encounter with Jesus, right? He's walking through his testimony, his story, that here's where I was and here's what happened on that day. And here's the encounter with Jesus, this moment that changed everything for Paul. Reoriented his whole life. He was headed to Damascus to persecute Christians. And when he met Jesus, he was going to join them. He's going to give his life away with him. And up to this moment, Paul had all the information about God. Had a lot of information about God, but it wasn't until he met Jesus that he was truly transformed. And there is nothing abnormal about Paul's conversion. We love to hold it high, right? That there's this moment where this wretched person has this encounter with Jesus and is radically changed and his whole life is reoriented. Do you know that we were worse than Paul? Paul knew his scripture, even if it was a misinterpretation of it. He knew it. Most of us can't quote maybe more than about six or eight verses in all of scripture. So we were worse than he was, but we like to esteem him as, as, as higher than us because he, he, you know, he, he contributed a lot to our faith, right? God used him in a, in a crazy powerful way. But his conversion is very normal. Everything he thought he knew about Jesus was wrong. And, and when he met Jesus, his whole mind was reshifted. That he was given the truth, that he saw the light, that he understood grace. And this kind of transformation is the normal response to meeting Jesus. He would go on to say in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's basically saying, anyone who's in Christ is just like me. Completely changed, completely undone, and completely remade. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Those who truly meet Jesus become an entirely new person. That's what he's trying to say there. You don't just get more religious. You, you don't just make better choices. You don't just get into church. When you meet Jesus, you become a completely new person inside and out. There's something holistic that happens when you meet Jesus. 
And that's important because Paul would go on to tell about his commission by Jesus, right? That Jesus would, would commission him to, to go and to tell everyone in the world this good news of freedom and go to tell everyone in the world this good news of power. Uh, Paul, I want you to go to preach the gospel to every single creature you run into. And he did. And that was his commission. He would say in chapter 26, verse 16, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and, and seen me do and, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering from you, you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from their darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God." And they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul has been sent to herald the good news of the risen Jesus that because of the glorious hope that's found in the work of Jesus, the glorious hope of his work on the cross, his work in death and now in resurrection and his lordship, all of this glorious hope, now we can be made right with God. That's the, that's the news that he's going to proclaim. That our severed relationship because of our sin, that the thing that has us far from God and separated from Him is now being restored because of Jesus. That's the message He's sent to preach to all of creation. And because of the resurrected Jesus, we now have this Helper who is sent, the Holy Spirit who dwells with us and empowers us to repent of sin. To, he, he, he reorients and realigns our, our desires now. It's desire where my desire is about me and mine and, and this sin and this thing that I have, these idols. The Holy Spirit now helps us realign, right? Realign our desires to now desire Jesus, desire the, the, that the goodness of God reign in our lives. And then he would empower us to proclaim this message the same way he did for Paul, that we would go into the neighborhoods, and that we would go to the nations preaching this good news, that there is redemption found in Jesus, that we are far from God without him, but through the work of the cross, he has brought us near to God, and that we would just place our faith in him, that we believe the work on the cross is what satisfies the wrath of God and redeems us and brings us back into a relationship with Jesus. That's the news that we're sent to proclaim as well. When Jesus said, go and tell every creature about the gospel, he's telling each one of us whom he has called and redeemed to go. And he's telling Paul to do the same thing. And because of who Jesus is, Paul would then lay out his plea to trust Christ. And this is where we have to end. What I don't want you to do is trust in anything that man can do for you, but what Christ can do for you. He would stand after giving his proclamation, his, his testimony to King Agrippa in verse 19. He would say, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision. The calling, everything that happened to me on that road that day when I, when I ran into Jesus, I walked in it. I said yes to Jesus. I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. See, that's the message. You hear the good news of Jesus, your response is to turn from your sin. Your response is to believe on Jesus, that he will redeem you, that he will wipe away your past, that he will forgive you. And you turn to God he would go on to say, I was performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the 
prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And we see that on the cross, that the Christ suffered many things. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, speaking of the hope of the resurrection that we know in Jesus, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Every opportunity Paul would have to speak in this kind of setting would conclude, and this is where we'll conclude today, with a plea to repent and to turn to God. That's how he would wrap all of his testimonies up. Every time he would have an opportunity to testify, he would testify to the goodness of of God, to, to, to just how far away from God he was and how God had reached over every single dark place to bring Paul to him. And then he would say, turn and repent. You too can have this kind of relationship with God. And to some, this just sounds foolish, right? Festus would say, Paul, you are out of your mind. And you too, I don't know where you are today, but you might think this sounds foolish. Wait, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that it's that simple? That, that that's, that's it, Blake? Just believe? Just believe in Jesus? Sounds foolish. I'm standing before you here today as one who would say, no way. No way, God, you don't know what I did. You didn't see that one thing that I did that still nobody knows about. I'm here to tell you today that it's true, that it is that simple. And that's just start. That's the start of your relationship with Jesus. That's the start of him remaking who you are. And your past, it's your past. My past, and it's ugly. But it doesn't, identify who, it, doesn't get, it doesn't identify who I am as a, as a person anymore. All it does is shape how I'm going to do the rest of my life. What I'm going to do with, with what I have now. What am I going to do with Jesus now that I have Jesus, right? Like that's what your past is about now. Or you might, you might be one, you, you're not responding with this just like, no way. You might be responding with arrogance, right? You might be the King Agrippa in the room where you're just like, wait a minute. You think, Blake, in just a 40-minute talk, you can convince me to be a Christian? I can't, I can't do anything. I can't convince you of anything. But I prayed that God would. I prayed that God would be the, the great convincer, and I know that he can and he will. Regardless of how hard-hearted or arrogant you may be, Paul's resolve throughout this entire book, every time he has an opportunity to speak, has been this. Whether short or long, whether it's a 40-minute message, or whether I have to stand up here for weeks on end, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You see at Paul's heart there? He said, I, I, would, I would do anything it took to see that people who are currently living in bondage would be living in the freedom under Christ. That's what I would do. I would give my, he would even say in, in Scripture that, man, if I could just like trade in my salvation that, so that somebody else would be saved and just kind of spend an eternity away from God so that someone else might know Jesus, I'd be willing to do that. Like that was his plea. And that plea still stands before you today. Paul's plea, will you trust Jesus? 
Will you trust him to redeem you? Will you trust him to forgive you? Will you trust him to restore you, remake you, to walk in the purposes which he had planned for you from the foundation of the world? Will you trust him? He's big enough. Your past and your bad behavior and and all of the things that have you far from God, they are not more powerful than Jesus. They are not. They might be more powerful than what you can convince yourself of today, but they're not more powerful than Jesus. He's overcome. And so would you put your trust in him today? Would you place your faith in Jesus today and let him start working on you and making a new person out of you? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for today and thank you for um, God, just your goodness and grace and thank you that uh, you've gathered this group of people around in this room this morning to be reminded of the promises of God uh, in Christ Jesus. Be reminded of this good word that you've given us, God. Be reminded that you've done what it takes to bring us near to you. You've spoken to us through your word, Father, so I pray that um, we don't use our silent prayer time as a crutch from not, for not hearing from you. Father, we, uh, we see in your word that you desire to be in a relationship with us, so much so that you took your only son and you offered him as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And it's this what we're reminded of, Father, that you didn't ask us to do anything. That even on our best day, uh, Father, to try to claim that as any type of goodness would be an affront to who you are and what your Son has done. And so I pray, Father, that if that's us in the room who we're relying on good deeds and uh, good behavior and good manners, and um, Father, I pray that you would um, reveal that to us, that we would have a time of repentance for dismissing the work that Jesus has done for each one of us, for squandering what Jesus has done for us. That we would only look to the cross, that we would only look to the salvation that comes through Christ alone as our means to draw near to you. I thank you, Father, that we're able to come here and even sing songs of the truth that you've called us and that you've saved us. For without the work of the cross, Father, we don't have any songs to sing. We don't have any words to say to you that are grateful and thankful. And so, Father, we, we collectively say, God, thank you. Thank you for doing the impossible so that we might know you. I thank you for this word. I thank you for so many people, so many believers, brothers and sisters, Father, who have who've been willing to give their lives away to see that this word be preserved up until today, that we would be able to open up Scripture, that we would be able to see the truths of God because someone somewhere in history would 
give their life away to preserve this. And so I pray, Father, that for those of us in this room who stand on this word, who believe this word, who hold it as precious, Father, you would bring us to a place where where we too would do whatever it takes to carry this good news. Father, I pray it start in our homes. I pray it start in our jobs. I pray it starts in our neighborhoods. And God, that you would multiply that faithfulness, that you would multiply that obedience to see that every tribe, nation, tongue, and language would hear this good news of Jesus. We thank you that you empower us with the Spirit to do just that. Remind us, Father, that we are not doing this on our own, but only from the Helper himself that you've given us to walk with us, to be with us, to dwell in us. So God, would you minister to these people in these next few moments, Father, I pray. And God, the way we've aligned our hearts to hear from you, we've sung songs to, to worship you and to remind us of who you are, that Father, those in this room that might need to hear from you would hear from you today. And those who might need a touch from you would feel you today, that they would feel that you are near. And we love you. We ask these things in your son Jesus' name.